we're actually going to begin um, with a little poll of the room as we move toward our text in James. You know, I like to do these kind of things, but I want you to learn something about our community here. So um, if you're able, stand or raise your hand high. Are you an eldest child? If you are, stand up or raise your hand high. Okay, look around. Okay, interesting. Great. Now, stay standing if you're the eldest and you're an only child. Otherwise, you can sit. How many eldest and onlys? Okay. Interesting. Thank you. How about, I guess you could stay standing because this would be you too, because you're also the youngest then. But how about the youngest? Who are the youngests in the room? Okay. Interesting. Look around. Maybe you're learning something new about your neighbor. Okay, now have a seat. How, where are my middles at? I'm a middle. Who are the middles out there? Okay, <laughs> the middles, excellent. All right, and then the last one is, are you from a larger family? If you're from a family that had four or more kids, stand up. My large family people, okay. Now, how about five? Six kids, seven, eight, Oh, nine. That's us. Okay. How many kids? Nine. Nine. All right. The large family. So fascinating. I am the third of eight, so I get the large family experience. I want you to take a moment and turn to your neighbor, someone by you, and just for a second, share how has your birth order or sibling dynamic impacted you? Okay. So talk about that for just a minute as we shared. Go ahead. Okay, I, I am sure that, that was like tip of the iceberg. So continue these conversations over your meals and side chats. There is so much we could say, I'm sure, like I said, as the third of eight in a blended family, lots of family dynamics I could highlight. I will say one that was heated sometimes, my oldest brother, Tim, it was Tim and my sister, Mary, then myself, and my oldest brother and I always butted heads, which is not unlike my eldest child and my third born, which I was hearing some of that coming out over here. Um, but I, I think my very existence just bothered him for some reason, I think was a general annoyance. And I never understood why he was so mean to me all the time for no reason. Um, and so, you know, in, in holy ways, I exacted my revenge by like poking with my pencil um, choice words in the back of his prize 1970s, like muscle car on the way to school and things like that. Um, so many stories that I'm sure we could share. Um, because our context and our family stories and our sibling order, all that has shaped us in some way, right? And I, I bring that up to start us because I hope you've been thinking about how that's impacted James, the author of the text that we've been in in these last weeks, right? It's so easy to forget that these authors are people, with stories and context, right? So I want to get us back in touch with that a little bit as we're going into the last couple chapters because it's going to help us to recall what do we know about James and why and why is he writing what he is with so much passion and conviction. And that's true about this whole work but also about chapter four which is where we're going to go today. So I want to actually start us with a little bit of a survey um, to highlight what we know about James. And if you want to follow along and kind of flip through your Bible, you can. Otherwise, I'm just going to kind of take us on a little bit 
of a whirlwind tour. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to be actually verse 55. So we know, and we heard this from Tom in week one, that James is Jesus' half-brother, right? Likely the oldest of those born to Mary and Joseph. And we know that because of this little verse in Matthew 13, starting 55. So as the ministry of Jesus is starting in his hometown, his home region, people are going and saying things like this. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And aren't all his sisters with us? Right, so just from that, we know, and from the order of the names listed, it's likely from convention, that tells us James was the oldest of the brothers. And we know that there were at least four brothers and sisters as plural, so at least two sisters. So James is a part of a family, right, with Jesus and at least um, these six other siblings, right? I can relate. But we got to kind of think, what would that have been like for James, right? What would it have been like for James when they lost their father, Joseph, at a pretty young age? What would it have been like for James as Jesus went off to start his public ministry? What responsibilities would have fallen to James as the eldest brother in that sibling group then? What impact would it have had as these neighbors and friends in their hometown started being less amazed and more outraged? at the work and ministry of Jesus? How would that have impacted? Or as James saw the impact on his mother, as she experienced that soul-piercing sorrow of watching Jesus be rejected and suffer, how would that have impacted James? Okay, flip now to John's gospel if you're following along. I want to point you to James or John 7. There's a really interesting little tidbit there too, right, about the brothers. Because as the ministry is advancing and he's been kind of popular at first and now the tide is turning and as he's bringing these hard teaching, more of these disciples are actually turning away from him. So in John chapter 7, um, it accounts for this. In verse 3, it says, Jesus's brothers said to him, And I guarantee you, James was at the forefront of this conversation. They said, Jesus, leave Galilee, go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe him. Jesus, could you leave already? They didn't believe him. We know that James was not a disciple of Jesus, right? That his own brothers did not believe him. But we also know that something radically changed for James. And we know that because if you keep going ahead to Acts chapter 1, go to Acts 1.14, we have this story where after the ascension of Jesus, the resurrection and ascension, the apostles have gathered to pray and wait as they were instructed. And Acts 1.14 tells us they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and listen, with his brothers. James is there. Right? Something has radically changed for James. 
And the clue we have about what that might be actually comes from one of Paul's letters. So if you go to 1 Corinthians 15, this is so fascinating. Paul actually writes about this. He's telling the Corinthian church, reminding them about the heart of the gospel story and how Jesus died and rose and appeared again to many. And it tells us um, in verses 3 through 8, it says that after this, he appears to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters. And then he appeared to James. And last of all, Paul says, Jesus appeared to me. So Paul tells us that the resurrected Jesus appeared to James, his brother. Have you imagined or thought about what would that have been like? And maybe it was in that revelation something happened that turned it for James. There's a little clue that's so interesting about how even Paul learned that because we know that Paul, after his own conversion... Um, He spent some time in Damascus where he'd had that powerful experience with God revealing himself. But Paul writes also in Galatians that after three years, he goes back to Jerusalem. Galatians 18 says, he hung out first with Cephas, that's Peter, for about 15 days. And then Paul writes, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. So Paul has this profound revelation with Jesus, and he and James, can you imagine him going, yeah, the Lord appeared to me too. That's why I am who I am today. This James has a story, and he writes what he writes for a reason. And by the time we have this letter, we know that James is a significant leader in the early church. Right now, James is known, he goes on to become called James the Just, named as the first bishop of Jerusalem. In Acts, um, we hear that James the Apostle, that's the other kind of more famous James, right, brother of John, that James has been executed and murdered. And now, by that time when that happens, this James, the brother of Jesus, has already risen to leadership in the church. And one of the ways we know that is because Acts 15 tells the story um, that's often just known as the Council of Jerusalem, where James is going to preside over probably the first major conflict of this very young Jesus-following movement. Now, there's some questions, you know, about this letter. There's things we don't know about James and this text and exactly when it was written. But as you've been reading this this text and this book from James, the brother of Jesus, there are some things that we can know. The first is that while James didn't believe Jesus at the time of his ministry, right now, he's 100% sold on the teachings of Jesus. And I thought that CJ did such a good job last week pointing us back to even the echoes of the Sermon on the Mount, right? James didn't believe, but he was there and he was listening. I imagine he was grappling and wrestling with his own story and the things that shaped him and he was listening. And that's why you hear so much of Jesus in the writing and the words of James, his brother. We know that. Number two, we know that James is zealous for the righteousness of the church 
in Christ. He especially has this deep heart for the Jewish people to believe and receive Jesus as Messiah and Lord. And the third thing we know from this letter in the life of James is that God was using James to prepare these disciples for the challenging circumstances that they were facing right then and the even more difficult circumstances that would certainly come. And we've seen that right in the text, right? That James 1, James is preparing them to endure more trial and suffering, right? As we saw, and it will increase. James has been challenging us that our actions will show, they will show our true beliefs. Will our lives match our professed faith? Will our words have integrity? Will we show favoritism and will we judge even though God is the only judge and welcomes us so generously? And that takes us to our text in James 4, but I want to start us, if you're reading along, at 3.13. So we're going to read the tail end that CJ brought to us um, last week as we go into our text for today. And as you listen to this, I want you to hear each of the major sections of this text start with a question. James loves to use these questions to raise his concerns. A lot like Jesus, right? I think he got that from Jesus. So here we go. Starting at 3.13, James writes, Who is wise and understanding among you? That's the first of three questions, okay? Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom doesn't come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Second question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You don't have because you don't ask God, and when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people. Listen for this third question. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity? against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that, that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. 
That's why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And I want to pause there in hearing the text to talk about those three sections uh, and those questions that set each of them up. So that first question, right? Who among you, right? Who's wise and understanding? So James, we've heard this theme already. He's comparing these two kinds of wisdom. And here he describes them as earthly and heavenly, right? And this should seem familiar because at the beginning of James, he was using the same kind of language, but he used a bit of a different imagery for us. In fact, he used the imagery of of birth, right? So actually, he said, there's these desires, and and these evil desires, they're like a seed within us that when it's nurtured, it's conceived, it nurtures and grows, and eventually, you give birth. And to what? To sin. And when sin grows up and matures, it becomes death. And in contrast, he says, or you can accept the seed of the word of truth planted in you and nurture that. And as it grows, it actually gives birth to something different, right? To the first fruits of creation, a kind of righteousness. And when that matures, it becomes life, right? You see that contrast? So he's echoing that contrast in the text for us. Now, the next question is going to point us to a particular concern that James has with the disciples of Jesus in Jerusalem, and it's this, right? Why are there fights and quarrels among you? Now, those words, the fight and quarrel, the Greek words, the first word has actually quite a violent image to it. It's, a, it's actually a similar to like armed conflict. It's violent. And quarrel is more a, a maybe verbal altercations, maybe not involving weaponry, but it leaves open the room that the kinds of fights and quarrels he's describing are ultimately might even be violent, they're disruptive, and certainly they're abhorrent to God. And James is deeply concerned These are not healthy disagreements. These are not, you know, working through our differences and wrestling together. This is, to use the language he just gave us, these are earthly, unspiritual, demonic, driven by our selfish ambitions. It's interesting when communities come under great stress, and my guess is we've all experienced this in some context, when there's increased stress, we see conflicts bubble up. Many were there all along and just kind of come out, and some actually are brought to light and quickly explode when there are these stressors. And I think we have seen this in the last couple of years in the global pandemic, as that stressor, that global stressor has brought out, and particularly in the church in the West, increased conflict. And it's not new, this was true for the church that James is shepherding in Jerusalem. But it's so fascinating because James doesn't actually say it's these external realities and pressures and suffering that are driving the conflict. What does he say in the text? He says it's actually internal. He says, isn't it what's actually going on in us? It's our own discontent and dissatisfactions 
It's envy and selfish ambition. It's our prayerlessness or our selfish, self-absorbed prayers. It might even look on the outside like we're doing spiritual things, spiritual work, but it's a charade. It's unfaithfulness. And he names it as such, James says, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I've been talking to a few people about our experience in James. Um, and this is a really busy time of year for a lot of us. A lot's going on. And I don't know, I just feel like I'm exhausted right now. Uh, and I'm not bringing my best to my text group, that's for sure. <laughs> there's so much we're taking in. I can feel a little overwhelmed. Um, there's a lot going on. But I want to encourage us, I think this is a really important challenge for us that James is bringing, both to the church in Jerusalem, but I think we need to hear it afresh this morning. And I know we feel consumed with everything, just we're holding on into life, right? But James wants us to hold the sting of that. And I think I've... I've become more concerned, and I'm just going to speak for myself, but I'm concerned that we might just have grown a little too accustomed to fights and quarrels in the church. Like, oh, you know, we're, we're just human. Of course there's going to be fighting. Or we spiritualize some things. Some things are worth fighting for. And that's true. Those are both true things. And I don't have any illusions. I, I grew up, I'm a pastor's kid. I work in a vocational ministry. I've been a member in a church, this church, for decades. I, my kids are in Christian school. I'm in circles with many disciples. And I've seen a lot of conflict. And I've been a part of a lot of conflict. I think... Sometimes, even as a young kid, I remember thinking, like, there's always seems like there's someone who just really likes a good fight, who just relishes, especially a good, like, church fight. Or someone who's always looking for a critique. This is me. I could come to any conference or gathering and be like, let me find 10 things that could be better. Some things are worth fighting for. And we should be disagreeing. We should be wrestling with things. We should be having hard conversations. But I'm not convinced that that's what we're always fighting about. Now, James is concerned. But I love the turn in the text we just heard because he makes it clear that there is good news. Right? What does he say? He says, good news. There's more grace. <laughs> And he said, Does it, don't you know God jealously longs for the spirit that dwells in us? There's hope. And in fact, James is going to set up this next section, starting with a paraphrase of Proverbs 3.34 that's echoed later at the end, right? As he tells us that this is about submitting ourselves to God and others. And this is the proverb. He mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and the oppressed. And if you look at the James text, it says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. This is what he's referencing. 
This is good news to a church in conflict. This is good news. And James, in classic form, gets real practical with us about what it looks like. How is this even possible to live in love and peace with each other? And he tells us that as he says, submit yourselves then to God. And under that heading, there's these three beautiful couplets that tell us what that could mean. Here's the first one. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. That's the first one. The second, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And thirdly, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. You see, ultimately, the antidote to this sickness is repentance. And that's what James is describing, right? In that first couplet, I love it. Just as God opposes the proud, right? We too are commanded to oppose and resist evil, the devil, sin, deliberate, willful rejection. And just as intentionally and deliberately we choose God and we draw near to God as he draws near to us. And that's what's so beautiful. God is ready. He's available. He's not going to give himself any less to us than we give ourselves to him. And then we wash our hands. James exhorts the community to a sincere purifying of our lives. And then to sorrow. Um, we like the inversion of this. And there are inversions of this command in the text, right? To throw off the grave clothes, put away the ashes and rejoice. But here James says, change your laughter to mourning. Change your joy to gloom. What he's saying, church, is we got to be serious about this. It's right and good that we would actually have an acute and profound sorrow for our sin. It's more than just, oh, I regret that I was fighting with my sibling or I regret that quarrel we had at church or I feel kind of bad or embarrassed about how that looks. That's not what he's saying. He says, mourn it. And I don't know, I, did, I don't know that this describes us. Right? And the way that we walk with one another in our differences and walk through disagreement is actually one of the things that Paul says mysteriously is meant to be part of our witness to the world. That we show what a reconciled people to one another can look like by the power of the cross. And I don't know, I, I mean, does the church, I don't hear this a lot, you know, wow, those Jesus followers, they're a mess. I hear that part sometimes. They're a mess, right? They can't get along. But you hear them say, but they seem so sad about it. Those Christians are always crying and asking for forgiveness. All the wailing and the gloom about their own sin. Is that our reputation, church? Sometimes I think we're defensive, right? We're like, well, let's, you know, look at the curve at least. It's not the Inquisition, right? 
It's not the Thirty Years' War. You can look that one up, Reformation and a Reformation. At least we're not accusing people of witchcraft. We're not burning people at the stake over Bible translation or baptism and marriage and reproduction and who can preach and on and on and on. At least we're not doing that. But we fight and quarrel still. We just eviscerate people with our words. It's our tongues that light the fires. But friends, we burn people up nonetheless. It degrades and destroys the vibrancy of our witness. And brothers and sisters, as James says, this should not be so. His love of Jesus, his love to see a community that looks like Jesus is so strong, he cannot let it stand. He continues in 11, brothers and sisters, don't slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them and speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Are we God? No, we're not. James is emphatic here that the quarrels and the fighting, when those desires well in up, up in us, right, that we must humble ourselves and submit to God. When we want to be right, when there's something in us that just wants our way, we can either cultivate and nurture the seed of that, which will bear sin, or we can receive the word of truth that James is reminding us of, and that can actually bear life and righteousness. But we choose. We engage. We resist. We draw near. And I want to practice that for a few minutes this morning. Life is full, and I want us to right now try to put this text into practice. Um, in my experience, the more I say, I'm sorry, I'm wrong, I'm selfish, the easier it is to admit it the next time. Uh, and I want us to practice and guide us through a time of actually coming to God and repenting as James is instructing us. And particularly thinking about the quarrels and the fights that are driven by our own desires. And so I'm um, I want to do that this morning. And first, like I said, it can kind of help to practice. So I would just want to put some of these words in our mouth because they'll be easier to say to God and others when we say them um, out loud first. So would you say after me, I'm sorry. I don't know best. My desires may be selfish. I'm not God. Forgive me. Forgive me. 